Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's a good Sunday, right? Is anybody cold in here? <laughs> I put my jacket back on because I was a little chilly. But anyway, that's just me. All right, so listen, hey, we are starting a new series today called Refocus. And, uh, and this is going to be a six-week series uh, that takes us through, um, I don't know, probably into November, right? That's about six weeks away, so uh, something like that. But uh, here we are, refocus. And, and so the question that I kind of throw out to begin here is, sometimes we need to refocus, right? Is there sometimes in life that we just need to refocus, right? All the things that are going on, I, I mean, this is one of those years uh, where we are in about to enter into and maybe even in the middle of right now uh, another election cycle. And uh, that can be tough to get through sometimes. Anybody else like with me on that? Like, like, you know, you can't even escape it when you're streaming on a streaming service, you know, trying to watch a movie. You know, it used to be just on, you know, cable TV. Now if you stream on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, you know, you get those commercials there too. And so you just can't escape it. So here we are uh, in the middle of an election cycle again. And, uh, and let me just say elections are important, okay? They are important. And uh, we have to take our role seriously to cast our vote, to be able to, uh, to be heard, and yet not allow that. It's this fine line, isn't it? Not allow that to occupy every bit of our heart and our mind uh, as though that's the most important thing uh, in life, because it's not. And so elections are important. Vote. I'll never tell you not to take it seriously and not to cast your vote. You should, uh, yet staying focused on the most important things in life as a believer, uh, as a Christ follower, kingdom things are the most important, of the greatest importance. Amen? Are you with me on that? All right. You should be, because it's true. So, uh, today, again, we're going to be in the new series called Refocus. Key, uh, six key themes is what we're going to look at uh, over the six weeks. Six key themes uh, from the books of First and Second Timothy. And uh, so that's where we're going to be. Um, and today our key theme is worship at the center of the Christian life, right? Worship at the center of the Christian life, all right? So we're going to talk uh, through an introduction to First and Second Timothy. Anybody familiar with both of those books, those letters that Paul wrote? Uh, important letters. Um, they're called pastoral letters because the apostle Paul writes it to a young pastor named what? Timothy, right? There we go. That wasn't, a, that, that wasn't like a you know, trick question or anything. Uh, this young pastor was having conduct issues within the church that he pastored. And where was the church that he pastored? Anybody remember? Ephesus, right? He's in Ephesus there. And so Paul writes to him to address these issues uh, and instructions for the church, right? And so there's a significant focus here on the conduct in the household of God, right? So Paul's needing to address some of these things with young Timothy to talk to him about it, right? We see much of the letter focused on orga organizational structure of ministry in the church, which is very practical, right? It's very practical stuff. Timothy would have been like, "That's I love that. Thanks for giving me the practical stuff here, Paul, right? We see uh, a focus on addressing and dealing with the issues of 
false teaching in the church, an important thing that he addresses in chapter 1. Uh, we see the focus of uh, uh, the issue of church leadership uh, in the lives of the elders and deacons, those who would be placed in eldership roles and deacon roles uh, to lead the church and also uh, be of great help with all of the ministries within the church. If you didn't know, that's what elders and deacons, that's what it means in, in, this, uh, in these letters. And so uh, there's, there are issues touched on that are relational issues. There are uh, ethical issues as well in this letter that he writes. And, um, you know, if you've ever read through it, you probably got that out of it that this was Timothy's uh, first real pastoral role, uh, his, his first outing, right, his first responsibility. And uh, we see that he's charged with a tough task, right? His first outing, and he gets Ephesus. Man, I'm telling you, that's a tough one right there, right? Ephesus was a large and important port city uh, on the Aegean Sea, right? That's present-day Turkey. Uh, this city had a great temple, and it was dedicated to Artemis, the Greek goddess, uh, who was worshipped by many of the people, right? The Greek goddess of fertility. And so she was worshipped by many people in this uh, city. We know that there was idol uh, making there, right? And so all kinds of stuff that were going on uh, in Ephesus. It was a large city and it was an important city in those days. So Timothy met Paul during Paul's second missionary journey, we find. Timothy was well spoken of by the church at Lystra and Iconium. You can find that in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Timothy's father was Greek, so he was a Gentile uh, and most likely not a believer in Jesus. But his mother and his grandmother were devout believers who were solid in their faith and probably, well, we know this, not probably, they, and also in raising uh, Timothy up in the faith as well. And, uh, and so Timothy is uh, a bit shy and timid, we find out when we read about him, uh, the things that Paul is talking to him about. He's a bit shy, he's a bit uh, timid, and uh, he's a young guy, and so Paul's addressing some things uh, that would uh, show us that he, had, he was struggling a little bit uh, in this role uh, of leading the church at Ephesus, all right? We know that he had stomach issues because he was timid and he was probably shy and it was a heavy responsibility. He had some stomach issues uh, stemming from this and uh, also probably from the fact that he was just young and frankly just wasn't an easy task, right? So, but here's the deal. All of that said, Paul says about Timothy in Philippians 2.20 that Timothy is unequaled in his care for other people. Right? In, in fact, Philippians 2.20 says, For I have no one like him. This is Paul talking about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genu genuinely concerned for your welfare. Right? He's like, there's nobody like him who's going to care for the church. Okay? So he may have been young. He may have been timid, uh, you know, and all those things. But Paul sees through all of that to see uh, who Timothy is, what his strengths are, and who he sees him to be, which I think is just really incredible, right? Uh, his greatest characteristic is that he cares for God's people, which is amazing, right? We see that uh, he was sent to troubled churches. Paul sends him uh, to Corinth to address 
certain issues in place of him because he couldn't make it, so he sends Timothy to the church in Corinth. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, they were a mess, okay? And, and that's okay, uh, but there were some things that needed to be addressed, and so Paul sent Timothy in, that, uh, in his place to address those things. We see that people within the church at Corinth were arrogant and didn't uh, show Timothy the respect that he deserved in it uh, because of his age. And then what we see ultimately in 1 Timothy 4.12 is because, you know, Paul reminds Timothy to assert the authority that he has, all right? To assert that authority that he has. He was shy, he was timid, he was young, but Paul says, hey, listen, assert that authority, right? Like, this is, this is what you're called to, and he sees that and calls, it, calls him out. Uh, Hebrews 13, 23 tells us that like uh, his mentor Paul, uh, Timothy was imprisoned for a time as well, and then he was released. So, you know, he followed in, in that way with Paul as well. And, uh, and as you read about this, maybe if you read in your uh, introduction to these books, uh, you see that some recent scholars uh, have questioned whether this letter was indeed written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and, and they think maybe it's set in a different time, you know, later date. It wasn't, you know, things that he was addressing seem to maybe be later uh, down the line, and yet uh, there's really no reason, like conservative scholars would say, Paul names himself in it, so let's just believe that it's Paul, okay? Like, it does fit, and uh, the other things that people are saying, those can be easily talked through. So, we would do well to say it's, it's most likely the Apostle Paul, who had a great relationship with Timothy anyway, right? Uh, following the information recorded uh, from an early church father named Eusebius, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, anybody ever read that? You have that Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that the Apostle Paul was uh, led by Nero's soldiers out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers uh, made, gave his neck to the sword, okay? So that's what Fox's Book of Martyrs says about Paul and about his death when he's put to death. And so the dating of this letter would be about the mid-60s, probably about 64 A.D., uh, just a few years uh, before he was put to death in A.D. 68, all right? So you can read all about that even in greater depth yourself, but that kind of lays out uh, this letter and, uh, and the setting of it so we can know a little bit you know, more about the context of these things as we go through it, all right? So we're going to pray, and I'm going to read through uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, chapter or verses uh, 1 through 11, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll go into that. Father, thank you for today. Lord, bless each and every person in this room, uh, from the oldest to the youngest, Lord, that you would speak to their minds and their hearts. And we are grateful for every single person uh, in here, whether that be the oldest or the youngest, Lord. We are grateful. And so lead us today. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I just want to address that for a second. Like, I, it doesn't bother me at all having kids in the room, okay? So, I mean, I'm just telling you, like, we are you know, looking for, uh, for, you know, 
the next step in our Life Kids ministry to be able to offer that and have that. But until then, uh, you know, we might have a week here or there where it's covered. But until then, we're going to do what we can uh, to keep them occupied in here. But let me just say that uh, it doesn't bother me at all to have kids in the room. And I think it's a great blessing to even know that there's kids around here and in our church. And that's a good thing, okay? So if you're with me, you can say amen. All right. All right. Here we go. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 11, all right? So here's what he writes, and we're starting out. Verse, uh, chapter 1 is all about refuting false teaching, okay? And we're going to probably touch on that in a different week. Uh, but here we're starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, I urge you, first of all, this is Paul writing Timothy, uh, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth, he says here. Verse 8, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. Oh, wow, we're going to dive into that one. Uh, and I didn't even read 12 through 15, so there's just not nearly enough time to go through all of it, okay? So here's where we're going to be today, and we will touch on that at the end, okay? So I stated a moment ago, uh, there were definite issues in the church of Ephesus, right, as seen from this list of things that as you read through First and Second Timothy that you discover, Right, one of the key issues uh, on that list was this concern for worship uh, of the church at the center. Right, the 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 center of the church is worship, and there was obviously some problems. Right, there were some. Uh, this was, you know, worship at the center was great of great importance because uh, in worship, being at the center of the church, what do we find? We find unity. Right, we find unity. In worship, if that is indeed the center of the church, right? Uh, and so, worship in every area of the church, right? Overall, what we know about the church of Ephesus, as reading through here, is that they were fractured by conflict, right? There was conflict, there was division, the church was fractured in ways, and Paul didn't want those things to lead to a poor witness in the city of Ephesus, right? A major city. Lots of ministry to be done there, right? And so uh, he wanted to make sure that the things that were going on in the church were not giving a poor witness to the people around the city, right? Often, 
when conflict shows itself in the church, it usually shows up in our worship. Have you ever noticed that? Right? And oftentimes, one area of our worship, musically, right, it shows up. Conflict in a church can show up in styles of music and in frustrations of people wanting old songs versus new songs versus less instruments versus more instruments versus hymns, right, from a hymnal versus chorus songs that are put up on a screen, Right, And so there's all throughout the history of the church for many years, there's been this conflict in this area of worship, among others. But sometimes it starts there and it works its way out. Have you ever noticed that? Right? And, and it, I hope, it seems to be getting better, but, but several years back it was maybe at its worst that that was taking place. But uh, oftentimes what happens then is that struggle, uh, right, that that fracture, that divide becomes a struggle in the church for power, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about today, right? There's this struggle then for power in the church uh, because somebody doesn't like it this way or that way, and so there's this struggle, and the fractures grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Has anybody experienced that in here? Go ahead, raise your hand. Uh, raise it high like you mean it, right? Like, uh, okay, like don't give me this little thing, you know. Me, over, you know, I'm okay. Like, I've experienced it too. And, and let me just ask you, uh, you know, can I get a little vulnerable today with you, right, from our own story? Can I, can I share? Uh, so we pastored, Kim and I pastored a, a church in uh, north of Seattle, and, um, and it, it was a, you know, and please don't take this like I, I'm talking smack about this church or these people or whatever. I mean, like, that's not what this is about today. Uh, but there was a struggle from the beginning. We moved up from Texas. We'd lived there for four years. We moved up uh, to the Seattle area to pastor this church. And, uh, and there was a struggle pretty much for control right from the beginning uh, at this place. And uh, there was an individual who specifically had been in this church for like 30 or 40 years. And, uh, and I, I mean, I'm just telling you, like, control was his thing, Okay. It was his thing, and, um, and so he was the one, like, when I showed up and began talking to different people who led certain ministries and stuff, uh, I would ask this person, so, you know, tell me, tell me about this. How is that done in this? He, and then they would be like, you got to go talk to so-and-so. And so I'd be like, okay, so, you know. And then I'd ask in another way, hey, how's this done here? What's this like? Well, you, you need to go talk to so-and-so, right? And so this person's name came up all the time. Like, this was the only person who knew anything in this church. And, and I soon realized uh, that it was uh, all about the power struggle, right, to keep uh, the power within this church and uh, within the, the people. And this church was, was um, probably saw its heydays in, in like the, the 90s, right, the early 90s. And, and so it was, really, it was really happening back then, and it went from, you know, a couple hundred people down to uh, about 40 people. And when we showed up, it was probably 30 to 40 people, and they were like, we want to give this one last chance, like one last try, give it, give it one last run to see if, if uh, we can, you know, see, see this church grow again and, and be vibrant again. And, uh, and so I soon realized it was... Uh, the power was controlled by one person, really. And, um, and here's the reality. Like, I knew that it, there was a specific Sunday after we'd been there for a little while, and, 
there was a specific Sunday that I knew that our time was pretty much coming to a close there. Like I, I knew in my heart that it was just it was coming to a close, uh, you know, because I honestly didn't have anything really left to give there. And it, and we had been there for uh, maybe about two years. And so it wasn't like we'd been there forever or anything. But uh, but I remember just like we finished one Sunday. I finished the sermon, uh, I finished speaking, and I went down, put my Bible on the, the chair, and I turned around, and I walked back up onto the platform, and I was going to walk uh, across the platform, and somebody from the front said, you know, we need to sing more hymns around here, because they're filled with doctrine, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so I just smiled, and I just walked to the back, and I opened the side door and went behind the stage and closed it, and I didn't come out until everybody was gone. <laughs> I was just like, I cannot give anything else today. I got nothing to, to you know, uh, and, and I like to be around people. Like, uh, you know, I like that. But I was just like done. And so I remember I went back there. I looked out the side window and I felt bad because Kim was sitting in the car waiting for me. And I still had to wait out a lot of people, you know. And I was like, man, I, you know, I texted her. I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm not coming out until everybody's gone. And, uh, and so you know, so I just remember being back there and, uh, you know, and it was the, like I just knew we were coming to a close, right? Uh, everything became a struggle. Like after that specific Sunday, everything became a struggle. You know, I would wake up at night because of inner, you know, altercations with some of the, uh, the people who were there, like interactions that were, that were just not the greatest things in board meetings and elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, I would wake up at night, and Kim can attest to this, like, you know, I, like I'd wake up just pulsating, you know, like, like my whole, like everything was just pulsating. And I was like, this is not good for me, you know, like just stress would be from head to toe, you know. And so it was very, very difficult uh, and overwhelming. Again, a couple of board members basically thought there was no need for us to be there. I kind of thought there was no need for them to be there either. But uh, so I'm not going to lie, right? I'm trying to be honest and vulnerable with you here today. And uh, so it was pretty clear that uh, it was coming to a close. Finally, our regional leadership, he called me one day, and Kim had some issues with other people, the, some of the ladies who were coming to her and, and kind of saying pointed things at her about us. And, and, I, and, and finally, our regional guy just called, and he's like, listen, you know, I know what's going on. You know, we've been talking on the phone. He's like, do you want to be there anymore? He's like, let's, let's just take everything else away. He's like, do you want to, to pastor that church anymore? And, and frankly, we were like, we loved living where we lived, and we loved the area, but the church was like, it was a struggle, man, and we were just like, it was bad for our health. It was just like, I'm like, no, I, I honestly, if I'm being truthful with you, I don't. And so we worked towards uh, putting in our, our uh, resignation, and, and uh, ultimately then, uh, after our resignation was read, we had like five weeks to finish out afterwards, which was very awkward weeks. Let me just tell you, if you've ever given a resignation somewhere or resigned from somewhere and had to finish out some time, it's a little awkward, right? And so we finished that out, and, uh, and ultimately then uh, the main Pacific region guy talked to us, and he said, look, here's the deal. He took us out to dinner uh, before we had left the area. He said, here's the deal. This church is super unhealthy. We knew it was super unhealthy. We were hoping that you could give it one last run, uh, he said, but we've already made up our minds that in four weeks we're going to close this church down. And so, uh, ultimately, ultimately, 
uh, it did break our hearts because we wanted it to, to, to thrive. We wanted it to, you know, have life again. Uh, but ultimately, it just couldn't. And, and, and frankly, it's probably the healthiest thing for all of the people who were there trying to make it go and clinging on to everything. It's probably the healthiest thing for them to go and be with other believers and have a fresh start somewhere. Uh, and so ultimately, then it was closed down. But here's what I want to say uh, uh, about that. And there's a lot more. I mean, there's so much more. I can never cover all, all of it today. But fractures are ugly, okay? Fractures and division is ugly, right? Fractures left unchecked, they will kill all unity in the church and any witness outside of the church, right? That's what fractures and division will do. And this is why Paul uh, wants to stress to Timothy the need for harmony in this church, specifically in the area of worship, okay? Worship is central to the life of the church and the people because worship is central to everything we do as believers, right? It's so central to all of our lives. As a believer, worship is central. And so harmony is important in, in the church, right? So harmony in the area musically of worship, right, signifies usually a harmony uh, in other areas as well. So if we can have a harmony in, in some areas, usually that means in, in many areas we have that as well. And so fractures are ugly. Harmony is beautiful within the church, right? Harmony brings unity, right? How many of us have heard a bad duet, trio, choir, harmony, right? You, you know, when it's bad, it's bad, right? And so, but when it's good, it's beautiful, isn't it? Right? So, I don't know, you know, when you sing a, a duet or trio, a quartet or whatever, right, harmony uh, is beautiful in that. And just like the same is true of the church, right? In worship, uh, harmony is beautiful, right? So, in the life of a church, worship will be seen in some key areas, right? In teaching, right? Living out the truth found in God's Word through our daily lives in all that we do, singing our corporate and individual response to God's goodness and grace by praising Him with our hearts and our minds, uh, uh, in prayer, right, compassionately seeking the needs of others and lifting them to God, seeking His will for them, amen? Baptism, the outward profession of God's inward work, right, to identify as one who is in Christ, and also in communion, right, communion, joining together to remember the sacrifice uh, of Christ on the cross. But, you know, communion even, I mean, really, it, it kind of, it's at the heart of every meal that we have together as believers, right? Like, like Christ is at the center of everything we do, and certainly in communion, but I think it's also like at the center of every meal that we share together as believers. And how many of us know there's something unique about a meal together, right? And last week we had hot dogs, right, and, and, and other food, and it was a great time. Anybody have fun last week, right? That was a, good, a great outdoor service. Uh, but, uh, but I think there's something unique about that, and I think it's because communion stands at the heart of that. When we commune with Christ, we're communing also with other people and the rest of the family of God together. And so there were fractures in this church, and Paul, like a doctor, would assess the situation, and he would also then uh, prescribe the medicine, right, so to speak, uh, for the church. So after speaking about the importance of sound doctrine in chapter 1, 
Paul sets his sights on prayer in chapter 2. And let me just say for a second here, teaching and prayer go hand in hand, okay? Teaching and prayer go hand in hand. The church that has an abundance of teaching but uh, little or no prayer runs the, the risk of being well lit but having no heat, right? Frozen chosen, right? I mean, we know that. The church with an abundance of prayer, but little or no teaching at all from the word or scripture runs the risk of having great zeal, but no knowledge and no grounding. And so both go hand in hand and are super important to be together. All right. In chapter two, Paul addresses prayer. Okay. He addresses prayer and he starts out. We read it a minute ago. He starts out. And so he says, pray for who? All people, right? How many people? All people, right? Not just the ones that you like best. How many of us are good about praying for the people we like best, right? How many of us are good at talking about, uh, you know, praying for the ones who are the most generous givers, right? Like, like maybe that's what churches sometimes pray for, the most generous givers or, you know, not just highly influential people, right? We don't pray just for the highly influential people. Uh, we don't just pray for our own church even, right? We don't just pray for Family Life Church, Carlton, though we do, but there's other churches that are around the area that we should be praying for as well. We don't just pray for our own town, though we do pray for Carlton, but we also pray for towns that are around it, right? So we don't just pray for our own town. We don't just pray for our own country, right? We, we live here, and we pray for our country, and, 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 but, but we don't just pray for our country, right? So all people, with what kinds of prayer does Paul say? All kinds of prayer, right? So we pray for all people with all kinds of prayer. How many, how many of us know what a supplication is, right? In, in some translations, Paul taught, he uses the word supplication, right? Supplications for people. Does anybody know what that is? Earnestly and humbly praying for others, right? Earnestly and humbly. In, in fact, one of the words that was used is almost like begging, right? Begging. So you're really, you're earnestly and humbly uh, praying or supplicating, right? Uh, there's also, he uses the word intercessions. Anybody know what intercession is? I intervening on behalf of another person, right? Intervening on behalf of that other person. And then also he, he says, give thanks, right? Prayers of thanks for people, like thanking God for those that he has placed in your life and making sure to, you know, offer prayers of thanks. Sometimes that's a lacking prayer in our lives, right? We might pray for the needs and all these things, but how many of us remember to thank God for other people in our lives, right? And to, to really offer those prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, praying for kings and all who are in authority, right? Here we go. Praying for kings and all who are in authority. Whether or not you like who's in authority or not, right? Like, it doesn't, that's not, Paul doesn't say, if you like who's leading your country, pray for that person. He doesn't say that. He says, pray for all kings and all who are in authority, right? And how many of us know that that might have been really tough? If this was indeed written in the mid-60s A.D., how many of you know who was the emperor at the time? Nero, right? The emperor of Rome was Nero, who, if you don't know much about him, go read about him and go find out, right? He was a really uh, 
I mean, he's a despicable guy. I mean, I'm just going to like say that. He was, indeed. And so he persecuted believers. He persecuted Christians and believers. He would burn them on uh, posts for his parties, right, in his garden area. And he would call Christians the light of the world, you know, by burning them. And they would illuminate his parties. And, and I've heard things and read things about Nero that I would never repeat. It's sickening, okay? So this is the leader of Rome who Paul is saying, you should pray for all who are leaders, right? You should pray for all who are leaders. And that would have been a tough task probably for many of the believers because he also wanted to be worshipped, right? Emperor worship. So he wanted to be worshipped by the people, but the believers couldn't worship the emperor, right? And so here's this struggle also like, man, you know, we could get killed for not doing this and yet we're not supposed to, but we're not going to pray to him. We're going to pray for him, right? And so that's what they do. And so he says, pray for all who are in authority, including this Emperor Nero, who was horrible in many ways. So the scope of who we pray for must be wide, right? Anybody into photography in here? See a wide lens, right? You kind of you get a, a lot of the picture, right? So our, the scope of our prayers have to be like a wide lens camera, you know, where we can see, pray for a lot. But here's the deal. It also has to be like a super telephoto lens, right? And so if you know what that is, it zooms right, way in, right? Like the one that I have that I take pictures of birds, you know, you zoom way in. Right. So you also have to do uh, you have to be a, like a wide lens, but also like a super telephoto lens where we're specifically praying for the needs of others. Right. So we pray for many, but we also pray deeply for specifics in people's lives. Right. Are you with me still? OK. OK. Lunch is coming. All right. <clears throat> so both are important. Right. Both are important. Often the hardest part for us, and I don't know, maybe you've experienced this like me, but oftentimes, you know, it's not the wide lens that is the hard part, but it's the, sometimes the person that's sitting in the same room as you that attends the same church as you. Anybody, anybody ever been there? Okay, nobody's going to admit to it. <laughs> so, so sometimes that's the hardest person to pray for is the one that's in your own church that you have a fractured relationship with, all right? So it's easier to pray for those other people, the wide lens people, than the super telephoto. But both are important, right? Now, uh, believers, if they were going to live peaceable lives, right, like Paul says, they're going to have to pray for the leaders, right? They're going to have to pray for the leaders because, uh, you know, uh, um, <laughs> because if they, you know, if they, anyway, if they were going to be able to live peaceable lives, they were going to have to pray for those people so that they wouldn't get, you know, that they wouldn't set people off, set the leadership off, right, uh, or anything like that, right? Just pray for them. And sometimes, especially in this situation, uh, it would have been very, very hard to pray for them. But here's what we know. First Timothy 1, 4 says that God's heart is for all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, right? And so, here, here it is that God's heart, Paul says God's heart is this, and so maybe it's hard to pray for these people or for this person, but that's what we're supposed to do. And I just wonder if sometimes we get too content with uh, not praying for people, and we just think, well, there are some people who are just going to, you know, they're going to die, and they're going to go to hell, and 
I'm just okay with that. Like, are we at the place where that doesn't break our heart anymore, where that doesn't affect us anymore and cause us to want to pray for other people because God's heart is for them to be saved, and frankly, our heart should be the same as well. So, what is it that we want men to come to know, right? What is it that Paul says, or, or that, that God says, we want all men to come to the saving truth? Well, what is that? Well, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, right, who gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that, right? Not that all men will be saved. We know that all men won't be saved, but that Jesus' sacrifice made the way available for all who would believe it, repent of sin, right? Die to self and live in the new life that Christ offers. And so that's what God wants for all men to come to the saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ and that, uh, they, that everybody could repent, believe, and be saved and have new life in him. All right, and then Paul goes on here to talk about men and women's worship in the church, okay? So we're getting to it, the, about men and women's worship in the church. Now, obviously, there were men and women both missing the mark in the area of worship, right? Across the board, this church had problems, men and women both, right? And so Paul addresses it. If things were fractured, and they were, he needed to have Timothy get some of those ducks in a row, right? that there would be more unity and that those outside the church would be able to see their unity and that would have a good uh, influence or uh, it would speak something good to those who are outside the church, right? And it's probable that some of them, uh, some of the men there had found themselves believing and speaking false doctrines, right? In chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, we see some of that. And, uh, and so they were also, you know, arguing over petty things, right? And they're bringing their division into the public worship, causing more fractures among the whole group, right? Apparently, uh, anger and controversy existed, right, among the men of the church, because that's what Paul zeroes in on, right? Men, whole, uh, he said, talks about men lifting holy hands, right, free of anger and controversy. And so, apparently, that existed, and there was great division because of that. And so he says, I want you to be lifting up hands in prayer that are free of these things, right? Now, now why lift hands? Why lift hands, right? You, you think, well, okay, so what is that all about? And, and you know, I, I believe that lifting hands is a posture of surrender to God. Anybody else with me on that, right? It's a posture of surrender to God. It's an outward display of an inward surrender to God. And so if there is that inward surrender to God, the, like it would be much harder for those men to continue on in arguments and in division, right? And so a true surrender to God is much more than a mere outward lifting of hands, right? A mere outward lifting of hands, but a heart surrender to God that leads to unified worship in the church, the motive isn't, and I don't know, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this before, but the motive isn't to look spiritual, but to be surrendered, right? The motive of lifting your hands isn't to look spiritual, that people say, look at that guy, or look at that lady, they're, you know, they're super spiritual. 
Like, that's not the motive at all. It must not be the motive. But, a, to, but to have a heart that's surrendered to God and lifting your hands is that outward display of a surrendered heart to him. Now, if men would do that, right, if they would lift holy hands uh, from a true surrendered heart, there could be a, a, a healing of those divisions and those fractions within the church, right? And then so Paul says, listen, all right, women were to focus on a few things here as well. Uh, and get back to a place of authentic worship, right? Some women had apparently, uh, they had their own agenda in this church, which was looking to turn heads uh, of other people and be noticed in two ways, right? Two ways is what we see here. For their outward beauty and also for status, okay? So there's this idea of all these things that these women are wearing are, are wanting to turn heads to, you know, to notice the beauty, uh, the outward beauty, but also they were wearing things that would cause people to see them and think, wow, there's something, right? They're rich. Like, they got money. They got all these things. And so there was these two ways that they were wanting to be noticed. So rather than trying to turn heads, uh, they were to conduct themselves in a way that they would be uh, respected for what? Not how they looked on the outside, but for their godly attractiveness and the good things that they do. And so that's what we see in Ephesus, right? There's this pull. And, you know, think about Ephesus being a big town, being a city that was uh, filled with all kinds of, of flashy things, right? Right? And we could kind of imagine that, right? Like our culture is filled with all kinds of flashy things that wants to pull you towards them, right? Draw you towards those things. And so we have to be careful. And, and he's saying here to the women, be uh, seen for your godly attractiveness and the good things that you do, right? Let your inward good works and beauty be what adorns you and what people see of you, Right? And so, and so that wasn't always easy in such a well-to-do city, right? So as Christians, we have to be on our guard to not take the bait and seek out those things that are alluring and flashy and could pull us away, right? Verse 11 speaks of women learning in submission and quietly. And here's what we have to remember, right, in this culture, right? If you if you've ever read about this culture and about what was happening in those days, right, women were not allowed to learn, right? We don't understand this. Like in our culture today, we don't get that because we've never really seen that all that much, right? And so for the most part today in our culture, everybody can learn. Everybody can go to college. Everybody can, can run business. Everybody could do whatever. But in these days, Women were not allowed to learn. In fact, uh, I, I've heard that, the, that there used to be the men who would pray, thank God, uh, I, I'm not a woman or a slave, right, or something like that, right? And so there was this idea, like, it, you know, in this culture, it was, it was a hard culture for women to be in. And so that's just the reality of it, right? Sometimes people read the Bible and they think, well, this is oppressive to women, but it's not prescribing these things. It's describing these things, right? This is the way that it was. It's not prescribing this is how we should be. It's describing this is the way it was, all right? So I have a question, like the bigger question is, isn't it right for every one of us to learn quietly and in submission, right? That's the reality. Like every one of us should learn quietly and in submission, the proper way 
is to learn quietly and be reflective, right? And, uh, and so, you know, in this, in this church, you could understand there would be all kinds of, of you know, the women would be uh, unlearned, and so they would be probably speaking all kinds of things and stirring up all kinds of stuff. And in this culture in Ephesus, right, with uh, Artemis being worshipped by the people in Ephesus, some of the women would probably begin to think just like culture and be like, well, the, you know, as a, as a woman, I'm over everybody else. And, and so there was all kinds of things happening in this church that you should you got to know about before you read this and make a judgment call right so scriptures here's the thing scriptures elevate women to a place that the culture in that time did not and that's important for us to know and so Paul is saying, you should learn. You should learn these things and grow. Culture maybe says you shouldn't, but Paul's saying you should. But here's how to do it best, right? And so for men, Paul might be saying, don't seek out power and try to prove yourself of a superior genealogy that's, uh, than somebody else. Rather, worship authentically and in submission to God, in reverence and dependence. Raise your hands to the only one who was really in power and is worthy. And then for the women, Paul might be saying, don't try to be something you're not, to, just to turn people's heads. And don't speak of things that you're not sure about. But learn and let the work God has done in you be what people see and admire about you. And there was much to work on in this church. <laughs> there was a lot to work on in this church. And if we pay close attention to these things, we can learn from it as well, even today in our culture. And so the bottom line is, what does all this mean for us? And here's what I wonder. I wonder why we worship, right? I wonder why we worship. What are our motives, and are they correct motives in worshiping and and uh, wanting, are they just wanting to be seen? Do we want to be seen as an ultra-spiritual person, uh, you know? Or are we truly submitted to God, right? Are we seeking power, attention, or other things from people? Or are we truly submitted to God, right? And then does prayer and dependence on God have a rightful place in our lives? Because it must have that. Prayer and dependence on God. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray today uh, to end service. We're not gonna go into a reflection song, but I'm gonna pray today, and uh, and I would just ask you, you know, to really seek God with the motive that you have. And that, you know, myself, seek God with the motive that I have. Like, why do, we, why do we worship him? Is that motive correct? And does he have first place in our lives? Consider that uh, today, okay? Father, today as we look in your word, and we, we see what your word speaks to us and tells us, Lord, we want to be people uh, who listen, 
and who reflect and who learn and grow because of your word to us, because of what your word teaches us and speaks to us, Lord. May we all in here be people who learn and grow. Father, help our motive to be right. Help our motive to be true. God, anything that's in us that would uh, be prideful or arrogant or anything that's in us uh, that would want to be seen as something far more than we are, Lord, help, uh, help that to be uh, put aside and put away, God, to really be put to death so that we can be people who are authentically worshiping you no matter where we're at, no matter where we're, we're at at the moment, Lord, you will speak to us and grow us to be more like you. And I pray that would be true of each and every person in this room, God. Lord, if there be anybody in here that's far from you, draw them to yourself today through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to their heart and their mind that they might today repent of sin and turn to you, right? Turn away from the old way of living and turn to you, to the new life that you provide. To say, I uh, confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And scriptures say, we will be saved when we believe that and confess that. Turn away from the old and turn to the new. So Lord, if anybody in here be far from you, I would ask that you draw them to yourself and change them today. Lord, that they might be saved through Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for your love for us, God, and your goodness in our lives and the way that you speak to us and uh, grow us to be like you. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you for this day, uh, and, and it is great. Even the difficult parts of Scripture that we read and we talk through, we go through, Lord, we know that you have something to say to us in all Scripture. Lord, it's your word. You have something to say to us. And so we're grateful, and uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, everyone. It's Pastor Clint. I want to thank you for joining us today for this podcast, and I hope it was beneficial for you. Our vision at Family Life Church is simple, to create a safe and authentic environment for people to encounter Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please don't hesitate to send us an email at admin at myflc.org or connect with us via social media on Facebook or Instagram at Family Life Church Newburn. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Again, thank you for listening today and God bless you as you pursue him.